Amen. Welcome to Hope, however you got here. Uh, it's good to have you as we worship God together here this morning. Um, if you are here and visiting, we encourage you to fill out this form, let us know who you are, and we will follow up with you accordingly. Uh, if you are uh, in need of prayer, either while you're here or while you're out there, uh, please communicate those prayer requests with us. Uh, you can put them on this piece of paper and drop them in the bucket, or you can uh, email them to us at, uh, what is it, hopeepc.office at gmail.com would be a good way to do that. And so encourage you to communicate prayer requests with us. We take those seriously and actually enjoy praying for the needs of God's people. So if you are Zooming and you want the sermon insert, here's how that works. Uh, every morning when I remember, that's, that's important, um, I will send out an, uh, an email with the reminder for the Zoom link as well as the sermon insert attached to that email. That email goes to everybody that's in our uh, online member portal database. So if you have not uh, updated your email and you want that reminder every week with that attachment, just go, into our, go to our website, click through to our member portal, update your information, put the email address in, under your name that you want in there. If you don't have a login, you can request one uh, by just clicking through to the member portal on our website at hopeisreal.org. And so encourage you to get that all updated so we can stay in touch with you. Um, several things going on around here this week that are kind of cool. So we traditionally in the summer, did I say traditionally? That's funny. Um, but for the past several summers, our youth group has partnered with a ministry here in urban San Antonio called Blueprint Ministries, and they have committed to fixing up the homes of citizens in our city who live at one and a half times the poverty level or lower, and we've gone down and, and lived at their little dormitory they have south of downtown and fixed up houses every day, and we eat there and sleep there and work there and go out in the community and try to do good. Uh, this year, they can't do the dormitory style and the, and the groups, large groups coming in from all over the state uh, due to the global pandemic we're in the middle of. And uh, so they're piloting with our church here in San Antonio a workday uh, scenario so they can continue to make some of the progress they want to make with some of the homes that, these, that they've committed to helping these homeowners. So that begins tomorrow on Monday at 8.30 a.m. We're going to converge on the various job sites, the two job sites that we have taken on for this week. And we are go they're going to bring all the materials. We're going to bring all the volunteers. And hopefully it'll work out. We're going to have small teams. We're going to wear masks. We're going to be as socially distant as you can be while you're uh, you know, nailing roofing uh, tiles down or whatever. Um, so uh, we're going to do our best to make this safe and still be able to serve our community and do some good. So that's the plan. Um, Lois, anything I need to tell everyone? Okay, so the address of the home, you're, if you signed up through our uh, Sign Up Genius that we sent out, that address of the home you will be serving at, or where you will be serving, uh, will be sent to you tonight by email about 9 o'clock. 
it's, it's a little bit late notice, but we've actually had some, some shifting of who is available um, and some people who are trying to follow some, uh, so, some uh, home isolation protocols due to exposure to the virus, et cetera, that everything's changing. But we're still going to do this, and I think it's going to be great. So we're optimistic that God has this already figured out. He just needs to let us know the details at some point. Okay, I'm not upset. Okay, yeah, if you're, if you're able to serve, willing to serve, go to our Sign Up Genius. Uh, you can find that from our website, um, and then click through and find a day that you're available, and click in and let us know. You can register that way, and that way we know who to expect where and when. All right? What else? All right. I don't know. I think that's good for now. Um, Okay, so our virtual children's chat, uh, we're going to keep it really simple this morning, all right? So for our kids, how crazy is the world right now? Really crazy, right? So crazy it makes you want to run around, all right? So the world is crazy. Um, what do you do when the world is crazy? You could run around. Yeah, that's what you want to do. What? I can't hear you say it louder. Panic. Global panic. Wasn't that a band in the 80s? A widespread panic, that's what it was. Um, yes, ma'am. Run around the world in an abject panic. Anything else? Yes, sir. Have fun while you still can. Why not? Right? I like that attitude. It is okay to have fun. It is still legal for now to have fun. Just not fun that involves being close to other people, apparently. Um, so what's the one thing God wants you to remember when the world's going crazy? To pray? That's a good thing to remember. And who are you praying to? God. Why? Because he's in control. Our, one of our youth group members chimed in on that one. All right. Mike, I have been to churches where you would be the youth group. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. That's it. God is in control, God loves you, and God wants you to come to him in prayer when the world is crazy to remember that he's not crazy. He is stable, he is fixed, he is firm, he's reliable, he's trustworthy, he's good, and he's loving. So when the world's going crazy, what are you going to do? Instead of running around in widespread panic, you're going to pray, right? That's a good plan. All right. Um, so this morning's message is, uh, I, can I use the word fun and revelation in the same sentence? Is that, why not? Yeah. So I've been getting a lot of questions lately, uh, such as, 
what are the other signs of the coming apocalypse? Because I think I've seen most of them, <laughs> right? So you've got, you know, pestilence and plague and uh, hail. We had, oh, I, I get a new roof out of that deal. So does kale. <laughs> hail on kale, right? Um, yeah, murder hornets, right? Um, so it can seem like the world is just going off the rails, and it probably is. And so I've, I've actually fielded several questions lately over the book of Revelation. How do I interpret the book of Revelation, and why in the Lord's name would you read the book of Revelation in the middle of a global pandemic? Like, what were you thinking? But people are doing that, apparently. It's not a bad idea, actually. I fully encourage reading the Word of God anytime, anywhere, any chapter. It's all good. But we're in between series right now, and because I've gotten several questions on the same subject, I thought we would just take a stab at a portion of the book of Revelation this morning. So we're going to do that. I'm going to open us with prayer, and then we're going to read a little bit of God's Word, and away we go. We ready? All right. God, our loving Father, we come before you in the midst of the chaos in the world around us, and we just pause in your presence. We pray that you would minister your peace to our hearts, that you would draw us to yourself in spite of who we are, what we've done, and how we conduct ourselves, what we think, and all of the other ways in which we turn our hearts away from you. We confess to you, Lord, that we are sinners and we are in need of your grace, mercy, and forgiveness as it is offered to us through your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We rest there at the foot of that cross in the knowledge that we are forgiven, that you have redeemed us, that we are loved, and we thank you for that gift and that assurance in these times. We pray for those people in our lives that are sick, that are facing uncertain diagnoses, recovering from medical procedures. We pray you would continue to pour out your healing mercies on our brother Dean Morris as he recovers from surgery. We lift up all of those that we know and love who have been uh, potentially exposed to this virus. We pray your peace over their hearts, your healing over their bodies. We pray for those who are battling this virus, both as patients as well as healthcare workers. We pray your protection and your healing over all of those people. We lift up our nation in turmoil in these times, and we just pray your peace over this country, over this world. We realize as we pray that how ridiculous it seems to ask for something as, as benign as peace in the midst of all the turmoil. And yet, Lord, we know that you are the God of peace and you've called your people to be actively making peace in this world. Use us, grow us. We confess to you our own complacency in the face of racism and injustice in our society. And we pray your, not only your forgiveness, but that you would light within us the fires that burn for your justice, your truth, your love in this world, that we might express to the people around us who you are and what you stand for. 
And Lord, that in the midst of it all, you would use us to shine your light in this dark and hurting world. We lift up our, our leaders at every level of government, elected and appointed. We pray wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up our men and women in uniform. We ask you would watch over and protect them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way, that you would bring them home safely when it is time. We lift up those from our own church family who are deployed or overseas serving this country, and we just thank you for their service and pray your blessings upon them and their families as they await being reunited. And Lord, we lift up your church here at Hope and around the world. We think of our sister church in Cuba. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon them as they continue uh, to be quarantined and, and not allowed to meet, uh, just move in that context in ways that defy explanation, that your word would go forth through your people there and that it would not return to you empty. We pray your blessing over this time and your word as we open it and our hearts as we engage your word this morning. All these things we ask in Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. All right. So what I would like to do is take us into a sort of a central defining passage in the book of Revelation. I'm going to open us to, the, to chapter 5. Uh, this is the Re Revelation, if you want to find it in your Bible, it's the last book of the Bible. And we're going to just read a section from chapter 5, and let me just kind of tell you, uh, set a little context for you. There's a... There's a the author is, is John of Patmos. He's, he, is be, he is exiled for his faith on the island of Patmos, and he has a vision. He's visited by an angel, and he's taken up through the door to heaven opens, and he's taken up into heaven, and God reveals to him. That's why it's called Revelation. Um, God reveals to him the truth of of everything kind of it's and it's it's sort of futuristic but it's very present and real to John as he hears it and to the people that John is writing to and that's really important there is an original audience to this passage that was alive 2,000 years ago or almost 2,000 years ago and we have to take that into view when we try to interpret what these words mean so in that spirit John is first given sort of a, a rundown of the, the, the health, a health check of the seven churches. There were more than seven churches, but the seven churches represent all the churches. The number seven represents, represents totality, completeness, wholeness. And so when God addresses the seven churches, he's addressing all the churches. Um, but there's sort of a, a wellness check in chapters one through three of the seven churches and then there's a shift and John is, is brought into the throne room of God and it's uh, chapter four is is a bit uh, of a of the setting of that stage and just the whole oh, wow here I am and then in chapter five the action begins as the the God who is seated on his throne holds up a scroll and we'll read about that scroll in just a moment but he holds up a scroll, and the question goes forth, who can open this scroll? The scroll 
and we'll talk about this in, in a little bit, but it represents all of the consequences of sin. That's what the scroll represents. And so God holds up the scroll of the consequences of our sin and says, who can handle this? And there is silence in heaven. And John, who's writing this, and you'll see him say this in his own words, is just devastated that the sins of God's people are held out or the consequences of those sins are held out and no one can handle it. And after a pause of, of whatever period of time we don't know, Jesus steps forward. And you'll see that scene, and he takes the scroll. Sorry? That's just awesome. And so we're going we're gonna to get a little glimpse of that scene as we read of <clears throat> Jesus totally owning our sin. So that's what you're reading. That's what we're reading as, as we open this, this section and read these words, and then we'll talk about some of its meaning for us today. All right, I'm going to put these old man reading glasses on so I get it right. All right. Still might mess it up, but here we go. From chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, <clears throat> the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Yeah. That's good stuff. So, let me try to just sort of set for you what this scroll is, what it contains, what what the meaning of it is. And I'm just going to sort of, um, we're going to talk about that a little bit, and I'm just going to sort of um, lay out my view of Revelation, which is not really just mine. This is this is a really old viewpoint on on the way to understand the book of Revelation. Um, I, there's been a lot of uh, confusion over this book and what it means. Some of you are old enough to remember the Tim LaHaye book series, Left Behind, that came out a few decades ago. Um, and that that is espousing a really fixed, definitive view of how to interpret the book of Revelation primarily. Um, but that view is only about 160 years old, Rusty, would you say? 170 years old, max? May, uh, mostly younger than that, but it, it, it began to emerge in the 1850s and 60s, um, primarily in the United States. Any theology that begins here, be cautious, right? We, we are not, yeah, well, I'm just going to move on. Um, so the view that I'm espousing is actually a much older view. So Christians throughout the, the 2,000 years that this book has been in our hands have not exactly fully known <laughs> what to do with it. It's, it's, it's got a lot of metaphor and symbolism. Uh, ironically, one of, the, one of the few people I've ever met who actually gets the book of Revelation is, is an artist named Graham Toms, who was a member of our church for several years. And because he's such a visual person, as he reads this book, he's just like, wow, oh, this is great, I love this. And he painted the scene from Revelation 20 and 21 that's in the back of our church. Um, but that's just a sort of, theologians have wrestled with this a lot more than Graham has. Graham sort of has a different artistic mind, a crazy, wild, in, insane artistic mind. Uh, all that to say, I'm not trying to convince you of my view of the book. Right? I'm just trying to help us deal with what's here. My view of how to interpret Revelation will influence what I say today. I don't care how you choose to interpret the book of Revelation as long as you interpret it as the living word of God for you and for our world. That's what matters. So this is not an advertisement for my millennial view. This is just an attempt to deal with Revelation chapter 5, and I will. my view will influence how we approach this today. All right, disclaimer is done. So what is on this scroll? What does it mean? What, what, what do we see here? First of all, it's a two-sided scroll. This is a fairly unusual thing. We've seen a two-sided scroll in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, and it caused him to weep. He, he saw nothing but, but sadness and lamentation on that two-sided scroll. There's your clue that this scroll is not a positive, happy, feel-good message. 
All right, this is not a Joel Osteen scroll. This is, this is a scroll of, did I do that? Did I do that? Okay. Um, so, hope you're listening, Joel. Um, but, uh, all right. Just right out of the box, he's already lost it. It's just terrible. Um, okay. The scroll, the two-sidedness of this scroll means it's full. And it's full of God's list of the consequences of our sin or of sin in general. The, our, the, our sin, the sin of the fallen angels, all sin is wrapped up in this scroll. This is what is being held out and the question is asked, who can handle this? And heaven is silent until Jesus steps forward and says, give me that. I got this. All right. That's what we're looking at uh, is the fullness of the consequences of sin. The scroll depicts or is attempting to depict the fullness of the battle between good and evil. So that's really what we're looking, this is the image that's being set before us is this is all of it. This is the content of the battle of good and evil, okay? So after this passage that we just read, Jesus begins to break the seals. There are seven seals. There are four riders of the apocalypse. You've heard of them. They come in on different colored horses. The fourth one, <laughs> he rideth a pale horse and his name is death. This is the only movie in Hollywood history where the preacher is the way I want to be depicted. Yeah, Clint Eastwood, pale rider, heck yes, lay it down. Give it to me. Yeah. Um. All right, where was I? Um, seven, seven seals, four riders of the apocalypse, four angels, seven angels with seven trumpets, seven bowls, all of these things. I'm going to summarize it for you. This is fast, quick, and dirty, so brace yourself. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list. It's just my little quick and dirty summary of what follows over the next, I don't know, 12 chapters of the book of Revelation or something like that. You ready? All right, here we go. Ah, dramatic pause. War, civil unrest, famine, death, pestilence, wild beasts, martyrdom, earthquakes, darkness, persecution, hail, fire, blood, deforestation, meteorites, depletion of ocean life, toxic waterways, locusts, plague, drought, flooding, sores, ew, and extreme heat, all right? These are all what are depicted over the next few chapters as the fullness of the consequences of our sin are unrolled in this book. You with me? All right. <clears throat> this is really important. When, when in trying to interpret the book of Revelation... It doesn't have to be chronological. Like the first seal does not have, when it's broken, those things described there don't have to necessarily precede the second seal and those things that are described there. If you think about it, 
when you're writing something like this, you, you, you have to like, it's going to have an order in, in which it appears in the writing, but if you're trying to write all of it, something's got to come first and something's got to come last. And I don't think, interpretively, that it matters the, the chronology of the seven seals, the seven bowls, the seven whatever, the trumpets, it doesn't matter. It's not about the chronological order of these things. That's a way to get kind of lost in the weeds in my never-so-humble opinion. So when interpreting the book of Revelation, you need to keep in mind it's not necessarily chronological, all right? It's all part of one scroll, one unrolling of all the consequences of our sin. <clears throat> and this can unroll over one period of time. The period of time we're talking about is from the crucifixion. The lamb that's depicted here has been slain. You saw that in the text. And it's the time period between his death on the cross and his triumphant return on a white war horse to reclaim his people for himself. All right, and that's depicted later in the book of Revelation, which is also an awesome scene. Um, so not necessarily chronological, and possibly, like you'll love this qualified statement, possibly ongoing continually throughout the earth. What do I mean by that? One way to look at this book is that all of the plagues and problems that are depicted on this scroll or from the unrolling of this scroll are happening somewhere on this planet at any given time. If you are the church in Cuba, you will have a different list. Remember the list we looked at of the, the signs of the apocalypse, right? Um, and... Yeah, you can just sort of check off the ones that are relevant to us right now, like hail. If you're in the church in Cuba right now, hail is the least of your worries, right? You don't even know what that means. You don't care. You have other greater concerns, great ways in which the truth of this unrolling of the consequences of sin is impacting your reality. So it's it's different at each place on the earth and each time period of this span of time between Jesus' death and his second coming. Does that make sense? So where you are as a Christian on this planet, what community of faith you're, you belong to at any given time, you will see various aspects of this reality unrolling before you in the battle between good and evil. All right? It's all happening everywhere all the time, but in varying degrees. And that, just to be fair, that is my interpretive bias as it relates to the book of Revelation. It's not chronological. It's not intended to be chronological. I see nothing in the text that tells me one has to follow the other. This is, a, this is an unrolling of fullness of everything, of all that's involved in the consequences of our sin. And so there it all is in all its ugliness and uh, destructiveness. So, what are we to do with this? The first calling that I see in this passage is our call to trust the one who is worthy. To trust the one who stood up. When heaven was silent before the consequences of our sin, the totality of evil in our reality, Jesus stood up 
and said, give it to me. So whatever of these aspects of the consequences of sin in the world are besetting you today, there is one who has stood up in the throne room of God and said, give it to me. I will take it. That's mine. I've got this covered. That is so bold and so beautiful and so powerful that we have to heed that. We have to take that to heart, that our God is the one we can trust. We are to believe in the only one who is capable of handling the sin of the world. To trust in the one who is worthy is to believe that Jesus can handle it, that he's got this, that he has made a way for our sins to be forgiven. This passage makes it clear that this lamb who was slain is the one who has fulfilled the word of God. He's called in verse 5. He is called, where is it? Ah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a a quote from like Genesis chapter 43. And then he is called the root of David, which is an allusion to Isaiah 11.1, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And... In both of these cases, it is clear, John of Patmos, the author, is making it clear, and whoever's saying this in heaven is making the elder who says it to him, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. This is the one who, is, who has come to fulfill the word of God. He is the living word of God, in fact. And so here we have the reality of his presence in heaven and in our hearts. So he is the one who has fulfilled God's word. He has conquered our sin. That is who he is, the conqueror, the one who can handle what's on that scroll, all of it. I, I just simply on a personal level cannot get past that pause, that silent painful pause in heaven when that question is asked and John of Patmos is sitting there in terror that that sin has mounted such an assault on humanity that it cannot be handled and Jesus stands up and says I got this that If you don't hear anything else today, just take that home with you. There it is, all right? We are to believe in the only one who is capable of handling our sin. And we're to believe in the one who holds the future. That scroll, in its context, its original context, is all present and real. Everything depicted there is going on in the church, in the seven churches, in the totality of the church at that time. All of it. And Jesus says, I've got this. And everything depicted in the breaking of those seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, the four riders, etc. is going on from that time into this time and until Jesus comes back. 
It's all going on somewhere now. And Jesus says, I've got this. It's mine. I'll take it. I will deal with it. And so we are to put our faith to believe in the one who holds the future. He can handle it. He has proven that on the cross. He can handle the totality of sin in this world. He can handle the future. He can handle the present. He can handle it all. And it's all in his hand. I just want you to just visualize for a moment this I don't know what a, a lamb, a, a standing lamb who has been slain, I don't know what that looks like. I asked Graham if he had a picture of it. Uh, he'll probably draw me something weird. I'll show it to you when I get it. Um, but a slain standing lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. This is, if, this, if Graham Toms doesn't paint this, I'm just, there's no one else who can, right? Seven eyes that look over all the earth. Um, I don't know what this would have looked like, but I know what he did. He reached out and he took the totality of human sin and angelic sin, Satan's sin, into his hand. He said, give me that. I can handle it. That is who we are to place our faith in, the one we are to trust because he is worthy. We are to trust the one who is worthy, and we are to worship the one who is worthy. This is our response. Now, what all is caught up in this idea that's being expressed here? Let's talk about that for a moment. We are to fall down before him in worship, to pray to him. I love the fact that in the throne room of God Almighty, there are bowls that are burning and filling the room with a pleasant aroma, and the contents of those bowls are your prayers. Our prayers are never wasted. They are taken up into the throne room of God, and they fill the room with an aroma pleasing unto the Lord. That's a quote from like Leviticus or something. He's listening. He loves you. He hears you. Your prayers fill his, the room of his presence. This is the God who listens. We are to pray to him. We are to thank him. We're to thank him, verse 9 reminds us, for being covered by the sacrifice he made for our sins. And we're to thank him for being part of his diverse family. The fact that our nation can't seem to get this should trouble us to the core of our souls. That the color of a person's skin, we would, that we would allow that to divide us when we have this in our hands. God's eternal family includes everyone, well, People from every tribe, every nation, every language, every culture. There is no colorblindness in God's eyes or 
there's all only color blindness in God's eyes, depending on how you want to phrase or look at that. He doesn't care about these silly, superficial, ridiculous things that divide us as humans. He cares about handling the totality of our sin, including our racism, our, our uh, apathy towards injustice, whatever the sin may be. All he cares about is dealing with that sin and drawing us to himself. And so our culture will continue to get it wrong until we get it right. And so here we are called to pray to him, to fall down before him, to pray to him, to thank him for being forgiven, to thank him for being part of his family, and to praise him for eternity. This language in verse 10, I want you to hear me. What are you called in verse 10 of chapter 5 of the book of Revelation? Who are you? What are you called here? Do you see it? A priest. Um, we, all of us, are part of the priesthood of the faith of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? <laughs> it means two things as I see it. First of all, in the Old Testament, a priest was an intermediary that went between a sinful human and a holy God. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his placement of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart has removed the need for anyone else to be a priest for you in your relationship to God. You do not need an intermediary. His name is Christ. He has you covered. You are forgiven, you are included, you are called into his presence for eternity. We're done there. The other aspect of being a priest is ministering God's grace to others. You are called to, to minister his grace to the people around you. We are all called to that. We are to be his agents, his emissaries, his intermediaries for others to get them to the point where they don't need an intermediary to where they have the deposit of the holy spirit in their hearts by virtue of what christ has done for them on the cross i cannot emphasize this enough you do not need me spiritually you have everything you need in the person of jesus christ and his sacrifice for your sins. Now, I hope that I'm helpful to you in the development and progress of your faith, right? That's what I'm called to do, is to be helpful to you. But you don't need me, and I know that. I will never be the self-important um, one because I understand this gospel and how broken I truly am. The older I get, I don't feel more holy. I feel more aware of what a sinful jerk I am. And that, my friends, is the beginning of wisdom. So, 
we are to fall down before God and ultimately yield to him an eternal praise as priests who are extending his grace in this world. And we are to find comfort in his presence. If you choose to read through the book of Revelation this week, I encourage it, go for it. Once you get past this chapter, it gets horrifyingly weird, ugly, and violent. And I I use the word blood in my little summary up there, but there's like seven or eight different manifestations of that in, in the words that follow in the subsequent chapters. That's a, that's a grotesquely simple summary of, of that one concept. So it's really ugly. But here's what you need to know as you read. He was slain for your sin. He was sacrificed for your forgiveness. You are called through and out of that, the consequences of the sin of humanity and into the eternal presence of God. You are to be a priest in the mire of humanity, but that is not what defines who you are. You belong to the one who is worthy. You belong in his eternal, diverse, gracious, loving family. And so, to take comfort in the fact that you are forgiven because he was slain for your sin. And to take comfort in the fact that you are secure in his hands. This life is not all there is. And so, when it's swirling and chaotic and overwhelming, we are to remember one thing. He grabbed all of that out of the hand of God and said, I've got this. And those are my people. And I will redeem them. I have redeemed them from all of this. And so we are called to be a people of hope even in the face of despair. To be those who love in the face of hatred. Who find ways to show grace in a hurting, dark, and painful world. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word. Even the parts that are bizarre and painful and violent and difficult to understand, we see a clear image of a God who conquers, who conquers sin, who conquers death, who conquers doubt, who conquers fear, and replaces it all with the security of being brought into your incredible family forever, claimed by a blood not our own, bought, redeemed, restored, renewed into a family we don't deserve to be a part of. Lord, Make us into the priests that will minister your grace in this dark and hurting world. May we be a people of hope for the glory of your name. Amen.